Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. What do you believe is the greatest need in life? What do you believe is the greatest need in life? And maybe before we go further, we should clarify our terms. A need is a lack of something that is required, something essential. So then, again, I ask, what do you believe is the greatest need in life? Is it knowledge or wisdom an education, the benefit of experience, having the right answers to the many questions that we face in this life. Maybe it's stability and security. That's our greatest need. Having gainful and regular employment, being able to provide or to be provided with resources like food, clothing, shelter. Or maybe an answer to the question, what is our, the greatest need that we have? It could be health and well-being. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, presenting, possessing a sense of belonging, intimacy, respect, esteem. What do you believe is your greatest need in life? Notice how I added the possessive pronoun your this time around. I did this because we might think that our answer to the question might be different than someone else's. You might even be sitting there thinking, might even you know, be saying, well, my answer to that question that will vary depending upon my stage of life, right? You know, when I'm younger, it'd be really great to have a lot more stability and security. When I'm older, it'd be really great to have a lot more health, right? But what if it's possible the answer to this question is the same for all of us? What is our greatest need in life? Today, as we return to the Gospel of Luke and keep following Jesus closely, we're going to receive the answer to this question. What is our greatest need in life? And the answer at first might surprise us. But what's even more surprising, what's at the heart of the good news that brings us together is that Jesus not only knows our greatest need in life, but that Jesus comes into our lives comes into this world to meet that very need. If your Bibles are open your eyes are on the screen, let's hear from the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It reads, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him, Jesus, spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now one day, Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. 
Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. But when they could not find a way to do so because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been seriously unwell? Seriously unwell. So ravaged by a disease that you had to be isolated from others. I mean, as we continue to navigate life in a COVID-19 world, both those who've been infected by the coronavirus, no matter whether it was a mild or severe case, and those who were already immune-compromised and therefore could not risk being infected by the coronavirus, both groups of people have some sense of the feeling of being isolated and cut off from others for a time. But imagine, imagine if that period of isolation due to sickness lasted indefinitely. What if the symptoms of whatever was ailing you were so visible, so impossible to cover or minimize, that not only did you increasingly feel self-conscious about your sorry state, but even worse, other people, out of fear of being infected, intentionally avoided you? Then take it a step further. And picture your sense of isolation from the community around you being a matter of law. Your friends, your family, your neighbors are legally required to cut themselves off from you. This is the lived experience, the day-to-day reality for the first person that Jesus encounters in our passage today. Luke The writer of this gospel, a physician by trade, describes this man's body as being covered with a severe, advanced skin disease. And this man's condition is a living death sentence. Not only does he suffer bodily, but due to his capacity to infect others, this man is classified. He's labeled a leper, which turns his ailment into more than a physical disease. It also becomes a social disease. Because the law, as recorded in the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, was clear. Being as contagious as he is, the burden is on the man, this man, to exile himself from the community, to loudly announce his presence and proximity so that others can steer clear of him. But as you heard, Jesus coming to town changes everything for this man. 
in a bold, courageous act that evidences both his desperation, right, and his conviction, this man crosses the line. This man breaks the law of separation to get as close as he possibly can to Jesus. Falling to the ground, adopting a posture of both submission and vulnerability, this man expresses his faith even as he pleads his case. Declaring that if if Jesus is willing, if Jesus is willing, Jesus can make him clean. Understand, what this man is begging for is more than a physical healing. After a lifetime of being functionally invisible, this man is asking to be seen. This man is asking to be acknowledged. And even more than this, this man is asking to be approached, to be touched. It's a big ask. It's a big ask. There's a sizable risk of rejection. I mean, being seen just in such close proximity to this contagious leper, let alone to reach out and make contact with him. Jesus could contaminate himself, cut himself off from the community. But Jesus doesn't hesitate. Because, beloved, God does not come down in the flesh. God does not get that close to us only to offer long-distance relief. As Jesus affirms his willingness to heal this man, Jesus backs up his words with an outstretched hand, touching this man without hesitation. Addressing the disease, Jesus commands a cure, and immediately the wretched skin ailment that has imprisoned this man all his life goes away. Jesus then orders the new man who is standing before him to follow the prescribed protocols set down long ago by Moses to certify his cleansing. And even though this, Jesus orders this man to keep this miraculous moment to himself, you heard it, the word about Jesus continues to get out. And as the scene changes, we're told that individual encounters like this one with Jesus, that the one, like the one this man experienced, quickly become eclipsed by crowds. Throngs of people regularly gather to hear what Jesus has to say. And more importantly, Luke tells us, more importantly to them, they gather to be healed of all that ails them. And so large, so persistent are these growing crowds that Luke also tells us the only place Jesus could go, the only place Jesus could go to get, you know, a little peace and quiet, the only place Jesus could go to find the space to abide to listen, to be directed by the Father. The only place Jesus could go, it's translated in our Bibles as lonely places, but what it actually translates into is the solitude of the desert, the wilderness. The place where Jesus was tempted is the place Jesus has to go back to just to be able to find that space, to not be consumed by the expectation, the demands of others, but instead to be filled by the presence of the Spirit words of his father. Now, this is still true in our day. Whenever, whenever anyone starts to draw a crowd, and especially if they draw a crowd that follows them all around, the people in charge start to take notice. Now, no doubt they heard the rumors about Jesus, 
I mean, word gets out, right? They heard the rumors, but as rumors eventually became testimonies about miracles, as Jesus, as we might say today, goes viral, the religious leadership, the professional theologians, notice, gather from all over the land. Luke tells us from all over, north, south, east, and west. They all gather, and they're gathering to size up Jesus, to investigate firsthand the work he is doing. And the next sentence is great, because from the way Luke conveys it, they gather, but no one can deny, no one can deny, as all gather, that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And in fact, we're told that all the excitement, all the demand for Jesus had reached such a fever pitch that it was standing room only. Picture that, standing room only, standing in line, standing outside the door, right, hoping to get in for an appointment. How far have you ever been willing to go for a friend? How far have you ever been willing to go for a friend? Let's reverse it. What's the farthest you've been carried by someone else? What's the farthest you've been carried by someone else? I mean, do you know what it's like to come such a long way only to hit a dead end? Have you ever faced an obstacle before you that seemed insurmountable? We're done here. Game over. Not going to happen. Only to be picked up by others. To have another person shoulder your burden. If you can relate, And you know what it was like for that man on the mat that Luke tells us about. The man who was paralyzed, who couldn't walk, who couldn't get through the crowd, who couldn't get past the door, who couldn't get within earshot of Jesus. You know what that's like. Beloved, God never created us to walk alone. We are, and I hope we've learned this in these last two years, better together. In the midst of a world that seems increasingly divided, we're better together. We were made for community. And as God's children, our Heavenly Father calls us, calls us to carry each other. Especially when we can't lift up ourselves. Well, apparently, the man on the mat had true friends. True friends. People who didn't just pay lip service to love thy neighbor, The kind of people who put their neighbor on their backs as an expression both of their love and of their faith in God. Bypassing the crowded door and choosing to take the stairs instead, which were common to homes at that time. There was always a staircase that provided access to the flat roof of these homes because a lot of activity would often happen on those flat roofs. So choosing to take the stairs, getting access to the flat roof of the house, these friends begin to shift tiles. They begin to dig and claw through thatch and clay in order, all in order to create an opening for their companion. Doing this over and over again to make a space for their friend to get to Jesus. You can picture this scene, right? As everyone can't help but look up and witness the man on the mat being slowly lowered into the middle of the room. As all this is happening, Luke tells us Jesus is impressed. 
by the faith of this man's friends. Impressed. It made an impression on Jesus. That's something, right? The faith of these friends impressed Jesus. And pay close attention as we continue to go through the Gospel of Luke because you're going to notice Jesus talks a lot about the gift of faith. The gift of faith. Those who take hold of it and those who don't. Later, Jesus will even remark that the smallest seed of faith, the smallest seed of faith taken, has the capacity to move a mountain. Here and now, though, Jesus affirms the faith of these friends that is willing to raise the roof. Because that's the kind of belief, that's the sort of conviction that Jesus seeks to give us, that Jesus seeks to provoke in us to exercise in following him. But this is where the story takes a turn because Jesus' commendation of the faith of these friends is not communicated as expected. The faith of these friends makes an impression upon Jesus, but Jesus turns to the man on the mat and declares, friend, your sins are forgiven. Up till now, Whenever Jesus has addressed the, addressed the afflicted, as Jesus has did with the man with the severe skin disease, Jesus always spoke in terms of being healed, not being forgiven. This kind of statement, this kind of declaration is a new wrinkle to Jesus' work and ministry. And I don't think you missed it. Not everyone's a fan. The religious leaders in particular take great offense at the presumption, the audacity of Jesus to confer something that is clearly outside his purview, outside of any human capacity. I mean, performing miracles is fine. Acts of healing are all well and good. But granting absolution, the forgiveness of another's sins, that's something only God alone can grant And what's crazy, I don't know if you picked up on this, even as every one of the religious leaders is thinking the same thing, they're not talking to each other, but they're all thinking the same thing, nothing is said aloud by them. Perhaps they fear the crowd will turn against them. And so the religious leaders attempt to keep their damning critique to themselves. And this is just the beginning, by the way, of the opposition to Jesus, the opposition that will soon grow sizable like the crowd's. In fact, eventually, the opposition, this opposition will even win over the crowds. The same kind of crowds we find here, filled with awe, praising God in their amazement over the remarkable things Jesus is doing. But for now, the opposition remains silent. Or tries to. Because Jesus knows what they're thinking. And Jesus challenges their unspoken rebuke, their telegraphed hardness of heart, with a question. Which is it easier to say, Jesus asks, your sins are forgiven or you are healed? And the obvious answer to this question is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, because there's no visible, tangible verification of this happening, of sins being forgiven. On the other hand, if you tell someone who's paralyzed, hey, get up and walk, based on what happens next, there is or is not visible, tangible verification of the authority and power Jesus is claiming to have. 
And the point of Jesus' question is revealed as he declares that what he's about to do next verifies his credibility in forgiving sins. Turning to the paralyzed man, he tells him to pick up his mat and go home, which the man, who previously couldn't walk, does instantly, praising God every step of the way. The rebuttal Jesus is making to his silent critics goes like this. Forgiving sins and making the lame walk are things, both things only God can do. So if I can say to this paralyzed man, get up and walk, and he does it, then it's a safe bet. If I also say to him, your sins are forgiven, I can do that too. Do we follow Jesus' logic? In showing his power to heal, a power that can be verified, Jesus is also demonstrating his even greater authority to make good on his promise to forgive sins. And this brings us back to the even deeper takeaway from this passage, which relates back to the question that I posed at the start of this message. What is our greatest need? According to Jesus, our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Think about it. The man on the mat doesn't come looking for forgiveness. Neither do his friends who carry and lower him before Jesus. They aren't looking for forgiveness either. They're seeking for their friend to be healed. The crowds who keep multiplying aren't gathering to receive forgiveness. Luke explicitly tells us they're coming, to look, coming looking to be healed or at least to watch someone else made well. The religious leaders who assemble from all around to come to authenticate a ministry of healing, not the pardoning of sins. Hence their shock. Hence their bristling, their unspoken bristling at what happens next. And yet Jesus reveals in this moment what our greatest need is. Not just the greatest need of the man on the mat, but the greatest need we all have. Forgiveness. An important clarification needs to be made. You see, throughout the Gospel of Luke, we're going to witness Jesus' teaching constantly being mixed with acts of healing. But here's the thing. In every case of healing, Jesus will not always speak of sins being forgiven as he does here. So we might be tempted to assume when Jesus does talk of sins being forgiven in the context of healing someone that the unforgiven sin is the cause of that person's ailment. And that the forgiveness was necessary, the necessary precursor for them to be healed. But Jesus, elsewhere, in the Gospel of John, when he's questioned about this by his disciples, whether another person's sickness or disease is due to unforgiven sin, Jesus rejects this premise. Jesus corrects this misinterpretation. And likewise here, pay careful attention, Jesus does not present the healing of this paralyzed man as being made possible because his sins have been forgiven. No, Jesus presents the forgiveness of sins as this man's fundamental need that through his ability to physically heal this man, he has the ability, the authority to meet as well. In other words, and I really want to make this clear because there's a lot of bad teaching in the church about this. Neither the man with the severe skin disease or the man who is paralyzed, neither person is sick because of their sin. 
But their ailments, just like all disease, just like all sickness, just like all impairments, are reflections of the deeper problem of sin. Reflections of a broken creation. Of life not being the way it's supposed to be. Therefore, all of the healing Jesus does is a sign. A sign pointing beyond the various and different afflictions which we each suffer. Beyond whatever we suffer physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. There are signs pointing to the common point of frailty we all share. And what's that common point of frailty we all share? Sin. Our separation from God. Our separation from each other. Even our separation from ourselves. Our separation from our truest and best selves. Another way to think about this, if I'm making your head hurt a little bit. Another way to think about this is to recognize something that may not have occurred to us. That all the works of healing that Jesus performs, that we witness Jesus perform in the Gospels, all those works of healing, while impactful in the moment, remain temporary. Ultimately. What do I mean by that? Those who are healed are still vulnerable to suffering in other ways. Those who are healed still have to contend with the decay and breakdown that comes with aging, as well as the inevitability of death. We're not in that passage today, but it is awesome and amazing when Lazarus is raised from the dead. But you do realize in being raised from the dead, Lazarus will have to go through that experience again. He didn't get in a pass on dying. He just got another chance to experience death. Some of us might go, maybe it would be better if he hadn't been resurrected. <laughs> just as our suffering and our sickness are but a symptom, not the cause, a symptom of a deeper problem, a broken and flawed creation, the moments of healing we witness Jesus deliver also are but signs that point to the bigger, wider redemption, reconciliation, and restoration that Jesus not only has the authority and the ability to give, but desires to bring into our lives. And this comes back to our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need is forgiveness. But I am willing to bet good money that when I asked this question at the start of this message, very few of you, if any of you, forgiveness was the word that came into your mind in terms of our greatest need. Because I don't think that's the, our perception of our greatest need. Forgiveness. Because let's be honest, and I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, it's easy to let the question, the answer to the question of our greatest need, fluctuate based upon our circumstances. We have this tendency to strictly focus on what is right in front of us. Let's go even further. It's tempting for our greatest need to be confused with our greatest want. I didn't have breakfast this morning. My greatest need right now is to get some bacon and eggs and some toast, some juice. And I haven't had coffee. Coffee sounds great. You'd ask me what my greatest need right now is breakfast. I got to go. I'm just kidding. It's very easy for us to confuse our greatest need with our greatest want with what's right in front of us. And here's something that's going to not make a lot of us happy, but it doesn't make it any less true. Jesus' desire isn't to give us what we want. 
I'm sure Jesus cares if I have breakfast, but that's not what he came to give me. Jesus' greatest desire isn't to give us what we want. Jesus' desire is to give us what we need. And here's the thing. Oftentimes when we realize this, whether we admit it out loud or not, functionally how we live, when we realize that Jesus' priority isn't giving us what we want, our relationship with Jesus no longer becomes a priority in our lives. When Jesus lines up with what we want, amen. Hallelujah, praise God, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. But when Jesus doesn't line up with what we want, Jesus goes on the back burner. Jesus goes in the closet. Jesus goes on the shelf, the mantle. And instead, we gravitate, gravitate towards those people, those situations we believe will help us get what we want out of life. Ask yourself, the things that you may have answered, what your greatest need is, the things that you want. Is Jesus front and center of those concerns? Or are you not looking at Jesus? Because Jesus isn't about that. You're looking at other people in other situations that are going to make that happen. We gravitate towards other people in other situations that will help us get what we want out of life. And Jesus becomes persona non grata. Out of sight, out of mind for us. Until we hit that wall. We hit that wall. We face that obstacle. We find ourselves stuck. We're doubled over by that fateful blow. We're doubled over by that unexpected diagnosis. But even then, we still come to Jesus, not looking for what we need, <clears throat> but again, looking for what we want. We're like the crowds that are gathered here, our shopping list in hand. We come looking for a sign. We come looking for a miracle. We want something wondrous to happen in our lives. And the excitement, the anticipation, Jesus turns to us and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And we respond, yeah, I know. I've heard. Thanks, Jesus, but that isn't what I was asking for. Maybe, maybe the reason we don't perceive forgiveness as our greatest need is because we really don't appreciate what Jesus is offering us. Too many of us, too many of us have reduced the offer, the gift of God's forgiveness in Christ. We've reduced it to a mere transaction, a changing of hands. Some of us sitting here, for, some of us sitting here forgiveness has become nothing more in the accounting of all our honest mistakes and willful disobedience, forgiveness has become nothing more than Jesus handing us an all-inclusive, ironclad pardon. For some of us sitting here, forgiveness has become nothing more than a totally clean slate, no matter how many times we befoul it. For some of us sitting here, forgiveness has become nothing more than Jesus covering all our debts, even if and as we just keep running up a tab. For some of us sitting here, forgiveness is nothing more than Jesus paying the price for our sin as we just keep consuming and laying waste with reckless abandon. But my friends, the forgiveness we need, the forgiveness Jesus offers is more than a transaction. It's more than a notation on the divine ledger that we can point to when our number's called in order to claim admission into the afterlife. Hey, 
I'm on the ledger. I get to get in. I've been forgiven. The forgiveness we need, the forgiveness Jesus offers is more than that. The forgiveness we need, the forgiveness Jesus offers, purposes to set us free, not just later, but to set us free now. The forgiveness we need, the forgiveness Jesus offers, lays claim upon us. That forgiveness takes hold of us. That forgiveness empowers and transforms us to live lives no longer haunted by our guilt and shame. To live for tomorrow and each day no longer limited by our mistakes and failures. And when we understand forgiveness in this way, the claim that it lays upon us, how forgiveness takes hold of us, when we understand forgiveness in this way, how deep, how penetrating, how all-encompassing this forgiveness is intended to be, many of us can suddenly relate to the religious leaders who bristle and ask, who does this Jesus think he is anyway? Who does this Jesus think he is anyway? Because sometimes we struggle to let God forgive us. Who is Jesus to forgive me? How can Christ forgive what I've done? Who is Jesus to forgive when they, that person I wronged, won't forgive me? How can Jesus forgive me when I can't forgive myself? Or perhaps we're listening right now and we're looking at it the other way. Maybe you've been recently wronged. Maybe you're still stinging from age-old wounds of betrayal or abuse. And you're sitting here and you're asking, who is Jesus to forgive them? How can Christ forgive what they've done to me? Who is Jesus to forgive them when I can't? When I've tried. But I can't. Forgive. In a broken creation, in a world marred by sin, we all play the same game. We all play the same game. We vacillate between the two extremes, right? Of either taking more responsibility than is ours to take and punishing ourselves. Or pinning all the responsibility on someone else. And making them our scapegoat. It's their fault. They're the reason. They're the cause. It's them. Life would be better. Everything would be better. But them. But deep, deep down, we all know the truth. We're all broken. We're all broken. We all contribute to the problem. We all contribute to the problem, and come on, assigning percentages of blame doesn't change the net result. We've all got the stink. We've all got the stink of sin and evil and death on us. And therefore, our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need is forgiveness because there are some things we can't forgive in ourselves. Our greatest need is forgiveness because there are some things we can't forgive about others. 
Our greatest need is forgiveness because there are some things others can't forgive about us. Our greatest need is forgiveness because there are some things only God can forgive. And it's because of those things that only Christ can reconcile within and between us that forgiveness is our greatest need. It's because of those things that only the Spirit can work through and somehow redeem and in the end bring something new out of that forgiveness is our greatest need. Again, the forgiveness that Jesus extends to us isn't merely parole. Forgiveness that is conditional. So long as you don't mess up. Christ doesn't forgive so that we just keep playing it safe. Playing it safe by either working really, really hard to stay out of trouble or working really, really hard not to get caught. Jesus forgives us in order to unleash us to live the full and abundant life he extends to us so that we hold nothing back. So that we aren't afraid to stumble and fall. So that we boldly risk crossing lines and climbing through barriers in order to better know and grow closer with God. But the forgiveness Jesus offers to us isn't for our own individual peace of mind. My friends, forgiveness is intended to be a shared asset. Forgiveness is our greatest need because without the forgiveness only God can give we cannot authentically and fully love and serve one another. Think about this. The greatest commandment, the greatest rule of life Jesus calls us to observe is to love God by loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Notice all those relationships are connected to each other. A breakdown in any one of those relational connections affects the rest. And if we try to work backward, as we often do from what Jesus outlined, if we try out of our love for ourselves to love others and thus in turn express our love of the Lord, it doesn't work. It doesn't work out of my love for myself to love my neighbor and thereby love the Lord. It can't work because we can't truly love ourselves if we can't truly forgive ourselves. And if we can't forgive ourselves, if we can't forgive ourselves, then we sure as heck aren't going to be able, let alone willing, to forgive others. The relational connection has to flow the other way. It's out of God's love for us that we love others. It is receiving the love that we need first from God and then from God through the love of others that we can truly love ourselves. We can truly love ourselves because our love isn't dependent upon competing with or being affirmed by other people. Our love for ourselves as well as our love for others comes from God's unconditional love for us. And what is the ultimate expression of God's unconditional love for us? His forgiveness of us in Christ. Forgiving in ourselves and forgiving in others what we can't forgive. And how? Do we most completely express our love for God, our love towards others, and our love toward ourselves? Through forgiving as we've been forgiven. Where? Where is the freedom of the forgiveness that we have thanks to Jesus? Where is the freedom of that forgiveness unrealized potential in your life? 
unrealized potential in your life? Where might Christ's forgiveness be the catalyst for you to no longer live in fear, but the forgiveness we have in Christ become the catalyst for you instead to walk by faith? We may not relate to the physical suffering of the two people we encounter in today's passage, but are we struggling? Are we struggling from a sense of spiritual isolation, spiritual paralysis? Are we struggling all because of the forgiveness that we can't extend to ourselves or the forgiveness we can't extend to someone else? In the midst of all the list of grievances that we keep adding to, in the midst of all the grudges we stubbornly refuse to let go of, in the midst of all the old wounds we keep nursing, where could the power and promise of God's forgiveness become the transformative difference in our relationships? The transformative difference. What if the reconciliation Christ offers The reconciliation that Christ offers, rather than the resentment you're carrying, became the defining narrative of your life. In that spirit, as we get near the end here, I want to share with you a prayer by a man named the Reverend Wade Brown that I've modified slightly. You might want to close your eyes and receive these words, but you don't have to. But here they go. May you forgive them. Right now. In this moment, may you forgive them whatever they did, whatever they didn't do, whatever happened, no matter whose fault, no matter how long ago, no matter how difficult, no matter how much you'd rather not, may you forgive them for their sake, for your sake. For God's sake, may you forgive and may you let it, may you let it go. And may you forgive yourself, yes, for that. And yes, even for that. And yes, even and especially for that. May you forgive yourself and as you allow God's forgiveness to wash over you and cleanse your soul May you become the means of not only being reconciled to yourself, but being reconciled to others. Beloved, forgiveness is the greatest need we have. Thanks be to God. Forgiveness is what the Lord is more than willing to give to us in Jesus Christ. This is why God came. Because forgiveness is our greatest need. This is why Jesus will walk the way of the cross. Because forgiveness is our greatest need. This is why Jesus will roll back the stone of death's tomb. Because forgiveness is our greatest need. This is why Jesus will fill us and empower us with his spirit. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can know and live out of the freedom of that forgiveness. So that we can love and serve one another. Not from a place of fear but out of a posture of forgiveness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.